2: KQED Public Radio. I'm Michael Krasny. Khan Academy founder Sal Khan is the first to admit that online learning is not a replacement for in-person school. The nonprofit Khan Academy provides free online exercises, videos, and software to users worldwide. Khan has been working with teachers to come up with the best remote learning tools, including some incorporating the socio-emotional experiences that kids are missing. Coming up on Forum, we listen back to my September interview with Sal Khan on how to make online learning work better. And remember, since this is a previously recorded show, we won't be taking your live calls and emails. That's all next after this news. Welcome to this morning's forum. I'm Michael Krasny. K-12 education has gone online, prompting no shortage of complaints from parents and kids alike. But as teachers get better at engaging students with screens, some educators and technologists see an opportunity to customize instruction and let kids work at their own pace. In this hour, we'll talk with one of online's learning, excuse me, one of online learning's early innovators, Sal Khan, founder of Khan Academy, the nonprofit site, became a key resource for teachers during the pandemic shutdown. And what advice does he have for distance learning? Part two. Well, welcome, Sal Khan. Good to have you back with us.
1: Great to be here.
2: I guess we should also begin by saying that uh, your career began with your 12-year-old cousin Nadia needing math help. That was 16 years ago, and since then you've reached about a hundred million people in 46 languages, quite a career, but a lot of it uh, has been most recently involved in public service. And you've been writing about avoiding education catastrophe with distance learning. And I'd like to go right to that point and find out what we can learn from you. It's been a disaster for many. And let's talk about the best and most optimal ways to actually remedy the gaps and remedy the kinds of problems that parents are facing and despairing of, frankly.
1: Yeah, you know, I I wrote out in a recent op-ed uh, clearly we're in a crisis and I'll be the first to say, you know, I'm something of a poster child for online learning. But if I had to pick uh, for my own children between an amazing in-person experience with an amazing teacher and the best technology on earth, I would pick the amazing in-person experience. Uh, hopefully we don't have to make that trade-off uh, and we can have great technology in service to teachers and, and creating a human experience. And also distance learning is is very suboptimal. Uh, no, no one thinks this is a, a good scenario. Uh, but, you know, the catastrophe situation is, Clearly, we have digital divide at, at home. Uh, I, I would say the U.S. school system has done a pretty good job of closing it at, at the schools themselves, but there's about 20-30% of the population uh, that does not have adequate access at home, adequate devices, and even where there have been pretty heroic efforts uh, in the last few months to get devices and internet access to families, uh, we're still seeing 5-10% of students just completely disengaged right now. and. What that could, you know, and you can imagine a lot of these are the same kids that m- might have already been somewhat disengaged in a traditional school system. And so, if they're not engaged for already six months, it could last another year or, or even longer. Uh, not only will they not learn for that time period, they're they're not going to get socialization. They're not they they might fall out of the patterns of schooling, and uh, we could essentially lose lose a generation here. So that's the catastrophe situation. And so, the I think the name of the game right now is all about supporting family, supporting teachers, so we can optimize engaging those students.
2: Yeah, and I want to talk with you about what you mentioned, that is the social and emotional face-to-face learning that really can't be compensated for uh, vis-a-vis distance learning. Uh, You've been working, I know, with Oakland Unified Schools, and you've been partnering across the country with Detroit and Houston, Las Vegas, just to name a few. What are you hearing from superintendents about the reopenings and distance learning and how they're managing to essentially accomplish what they need to accomplish?
1: What's been tough uh, for districts. So, you know, none of this is a criticism because I don't envy any district superintendent or school leader right now because of all of the things they've had to juggle. But since March, when we had the school closures, I think there's been two factors. I think we've all been a little bit hopeful that, you know, these, the closures would only have to, I remember when the closures first started happening, people were saying, maybe it's just through spring break. And then, okay, it looks like it's going to be through the rest of the school year. But uh, there was a lot of assumptions that this coming back to school would be in person again. But clearly that's not been happening. So I think people haven't had a chance really to do long-term planning. The other issue is this past four or five months have spent just figuring out whether they could open it all, really being in the room with the epidemiologists and you know, the conclusion in most of the country has been they can't open physically, uh, but what that's not allowed for is a lot of time to plan what the instructional side is. And so uh, you know district officials are struggling. Well, they're struggling with a lot of things. How do you deliver social services, lunch programs, things like that? How do you cater to special needs kids? Uh, how do you engage this 15% of students that are that seem to just be hard to reach for whatever reason? There's another 30 or 40% that have very limited access. And then the really big question is uh, how do you actually deliver decent instruction or interactive experiences uh, using distance learning right now? What we've seen most districts do is, uh, you know, in in the spring, you know, some districts didn't do a lot uh, for good reason. Some, it was really based on what the teacher was doing. Some teachers were doing pretty good experiences. Some weren't able to. This coming fall, everyone is doing more. But it tends to be just mapping what was happening in a physical experience and mapping it digitally. So if you had math class every day for an hour, they're now doing that one hour on Google Meet or on Zoom, uh, leveraging Khan Academy to do essentially your, your practice, your homework, and it can be supported with you know videos and, and all of that. And that's suboptimal because uh, right now for a lot of kids, and there's a little bit of an irony here, that distance learning uh, is their main lifeline to other people uh, outside of their direct family and so there's a bit of double duty or triple duty that distance learning has to support not only covering the academic standards uh, but also making sure that kids feel connected to their teachers feel connected to a community feel connected to their peers are able to even uh, socialize a little bit so we've been trying to work with districts to think through uh, how how can we make things more flexible? Uh, how can teachers pull kids out of the screen if they're on a Zoom session with them? Uh, can we think instead of one hour a day for 60 minutes, can you do every day for 20 minutes, but with a third of the kids uh, so that you can have a more interactive uh, relationship? Uh, what types of icebreaker things can you do every 20 or 30 minutes so that kids have that chance to open up with each other, even, outside, even if it has nothing to do with the academic standards. Uh, so that, that's really where the focus uh, needs to be right now.
2: Well, you're talking about video conferencing being more interactive, not only between students and teachers, but also students and other students. And also this would include code calling students who would include breakout groups, all of those sorts of things pedagogically.
1: Absolutely, you know, and to some degree, this is a best practice all the time, uh, but you could imagine when you're in an in-person classroom, Engagement to some degree is is a given, or at least you know you're physically <laughs> engaged. is a given. I think we've all remembered sometimes not being fully there uh, mentally, uh, but especially. But kids had other outlets between changing classes, lunchtime, recess, before school starts you know, on the school bus. They would be able to you know after school they would be able to interact with each other, socialize, and that's where a lot of the implicit learning of school happens. I think we all remember you know, dealing with conflict, collaborating, building our, our really strong friendships. And if kids aren't able to do that for now six months, it could be a year, 18 months, uh, that's really going to affect them from a social emotional point of view. And if, and if they're not in a good mental place, uh, the academics are almost you know not not as important. They're not going to be able to engage on on that level. Uh, So it's all about, as we're talking about, you know, pulling them out of the screen, you know, we we have a little project called refresh.conacademy.org. And it has these little icebreaker activities, you know, if you were to go back in time and could have dinner with one person, who would it be? And the intention is, is that teachers could use those things every 20 or 30 minutes to dive back into that social kind of fun aspect so that kids feel connected in that way, too.
2: We're talking with Sal Khan. He is founder and CEO of Khan Academy, and we're, Khan academy. And we're also talking about really how to improve online learning with him. And we certainly welcome your calls. and your involvement in the program. If you have questions or comments about online learning, you can give us a call right now, and I invite you to do that. Toll-free number to call is 866-733-6786. That number again, 866-733-6786, or get in touch with us on Twitter and Facebook. We're at KQED Forum, or email us, forum at kqed.org. I talk about, uh, again, ways to enhance learning with you, Saul, but I also want to get back to the digital divide, and we've got hundreds of thousands here in the state of California, without computers and without really internet access uh, of any kind. Um, And I know you've been recommending the connect all program, connect all students campaign program, which is trying to get Congress to do something about the digital divide. That's really substantial. And that will make a difference, particularly for those who don't have internet access, but there are many who are simply floundering here. They really just don't know what to do. And I wonder if you have some wisdom to shed on that.
1: Yeah, I think this is, you know if there is a silver lining uh from this crisis is that finally it's it's putting a spotlight on the at-home digital divide issue and depending where you go in the country it's anywhere from 10, 20, 30 percent of the population does not have adequate access. And this isn't just about academics. This is about being able to participate in the economy for their families to be able to do remote work, to be able to look for a job. Uh, it's about mental health right now. Uh, I, I couldn't imagine not being able to video conference with friends and family right now uh, to, to stay connected. And, uh, you know, the, the dollars we're talking about uh, at a nationwide level. Uh, it's in the tens of billions range, which is a lot of money, until you compare it to the uh, degree of stimulus that's being put out. You know, each of these rounds of stimulus that we saw in the early summer were a trillion dollars, give or take. Uh, so we're talking about something that's about 1% of that. And it would immediately allow a large chunk of, pop- of the population to participate. And I, I haven't seen anyone really disagree with this. I think everyone's seeing the writing on the wall that Internet access is now comparable to having clean drinking water or heat uh, in your house, it should just be, or electricity should just be viewed as a as a basic utility. We're seeing school districts. Oakland's one of them. Los Angeles Unified, uh, and these are just the ones I'm aware of. Pretty much every district we've talked to, New York City, Miami, uh, they've all done heroic efforts getting uh, distributing laptops. New York City distributed almost 290,000 laptops. Uh, L.A. Unified distributed almost 200,000 laptops, uh, and the local telecom carriers are are doing the right thing and providing. Uh, free in most cases, or or very very low cost internet access. Uh, so I think that's that's the first thing. Because Khan Academy, we can't do our work if if that first layer isn't there, or the school system can't do its work right now unless that that first layer is there. And then there's the second order issue of even when there is some access, you know, Khan Academy can work even on a on a cell phone. It it they they might not have enough access. Uh, you know, that's that 10 percent of families that they might only have one device at home. The parents might need to use it to do remote work, to look for a job, or the parents might be essential workers. They aren't at home to support their kids. And so the kids don't have kind of adult guidance to keep them engaged in school. And those are the kids that we we really worry about.
2: You've also got uh, a lot of tools that are available, though. I want to get into that with you once uh, people can get connected and get wired uh, Uh, There are, uh, in fact, uh, a number of online tools for sufficient practice and content coverage uh, that essentially can't be covered by Zoom, and a lot of digital tools that can actually enhance learning. There's a whole kind of virtual playground out there that people can avail themselves of, especially parents who are struggling, and uh, I want to get to that with you. Uh, We're coming up on a break here, but can you give us a quick outline, really, of some specifics, availabilities?
1: Sure, Uh, you know, everything we have at Khan Academy, everything I'm mentioning is nonprofit and and free and and funded through philanthropy. We have Khan Academy Kids for Early Learners, which is math, reading, writing, social-emotional learning. We have math from K through elementary, middle, high school, college. We have free SAT practice. Uh, We have science at the high school level. Uh, So, and there's many other resources we can talk about. Uh, We even have a project we're starting, and this is outside of Khan Academy, but it's a little bit of volunteer project I'm doing called schoolhouse.world, where we're providing free tutoring to anyone who needs it initially in high school math, uh, but eventually all subjects.
2: Yeah, I think that's a really worthwhile and uh, I think uh, in many ways successful project. We'll talk more with Sal Khan. Stay tuned and join us toll free
0: 866-733-6786. I'm
2: Michael Krasny. Listening to Forum, and we're talking with founder and CEO of the Khan Academy, Sal Khan, this hour. And you can join us if you have questions or comments about online learning. You can give us a call right now at 866-733-6786 and be part of the program and the conversation. Again, the number to call 866-733-6786 or get in touch on Twitter and Facebook or at KQED Forum or email any questions you may have to forum at kqed.org. And let me go to a caller. Marisa joins us from Sacramento. Marisa, good morning.
3: Good morning. Thank you for taking my call. You're welcome. So I have a call. Thank you. I have a comment. Um, I work with resource families and foster youth, and my experience and observation is that our children in Sacramento area are not engaged with distance learning. They do miss the social aspect. That's probably more than 50% of why youth go to school is to get that social learning. So the educational piece or the curriculum piece is very hard right now. And our resource parents are having a hard time holding our foster youth accountable. So I agree with Mr. Khan about we're going to lose generations. We're going to lose generations of youth that are going to become adults and being able to engage in society with employment.
2: What do you think about that, Saul Khan? Losing a generation, a lost generation. I'm not talking about Hemingway here. I'm talking about those Trying to learn by digital distance learning.
1: Yeah, you know, I I tend to be optimistic in life, but I think this is a very very real risk, um, and I think we have to you know treat it as that. I, I, even before COVID, I think there was a bit of a slow motion catastrophe where we were losing a lot of kids, but it was a little bit in, in slower motion. This coming, you know, we've already been in this for six months, and it could be as much as another year or or even longer. I I completely agree with the caller. I think this is a very very real risk. I think we have to take it very very seriously. We are seeing some regions, you know, in Maryland, uh, some of the school districts there have been doing some pretty heroic things where they're taking, especially this most I would say vulnerable population, and bringing them into schools, even though everyone is still doing distance learning. So the teachers are still teaching from home in a safe COVID safe way. But what it does is it allows these kids that aren't getting the supports that are at the highest risk of disengaging, it gives them a safe environment where they can get social supports, where can get, they can get meals. And they're hiring adults to essentially play the role that a parent would or could play uh, right now to make sure that these kids are accountable and and stay engaged but in a in a covid safe way obviously if it's only 10 or 15 percent of the kids uh, you can use existing facilities in a very safe way another practice uh, i've learned about recently is the phoenix phoenix arizona school system They're making sure that every student in the district is getting a call from an adult in the district at least once a day. And it could be a two minute call, a check in. And these by themselves aren't going to be a full solution. But this is the type of direction we need to go in to make sure that kids are noticed. They don't just feel like a number. They don't just fall off the the program, so to speak. Uh, And I think we're going to have to have some really thoughtful action when we come back to school on how do we get these kids up to speed. Uh, And it's not just going to be on an academic level. It's going to be on a social emotional level as well.
2: I was reading about uh, the program over in Berkeley where they're actually setting up rooms for students to chat with each other. And uh, there's also uh, in Atlanta, a whole program that's really uh, set up pretty much along the lines that you were outlining before. That is, uh, they're dividing different sections and they're also trying to make sure that uh, there's video interaction each day as well as social and emotional learning to help processing during the pandemic uh, because there's a lot of trauma associated with this pandemic and they've got uh, sessions actually for teachers and we'll talk about teacher training I hope with you too some of them are required everything from zoom to uh, reading students uh, to helping students uh, reaching them I should say with disabilities I want to get into what you're thoughts are, though, about not only for teachers, but also for parents, uh, online training for teachers and get your thoughts on that, but also um, the fact that uh, teachers, uh, you advise, for example, too many of them are replicating lectures in YouTube video form, and they don't have to do that. It's a waste of time.
1: Yeah, you know, I think, and the teachers we talk to, a lot of them feel pressure to Replicate what they were already doing, and the way that you do that, especially if you're not able to get the kids on video conference as much, is uh, record videos. You know, not too different than the types of videos we have on Khan Academy, and you know what we're emphasizing is the single most important thing for students right now is that interactive live time with teachers. So as much of a teacher's energy can be put to that, the better. Uh, And so if you know, first of all, a lot of these subjects are online. We obviously have a lot of it on Khan Academy. There's many other resources, but let's say there's a subject at a certain school that there aren't good law online resources. It might make sense for one teacher in the school or even the district to maybe give a couple of, you know, short videos to explain some concepts, uh, but then every other teacher should be able to focus most of their time on that interactive session with, with students. Uh, and, you know, in, in a traditional model, I think teachers feel a lot of pressure for some good reasons that, you know, you have 180 school days, you have 60 standards to cover, whatever it might be. And you have to create these really well-structured lesson plans. And it takes a lot of energy to deliver them and then to, to grade them and assess them and things like that. But this is a time where I think we can err on the side of a little bit more improvisation, a little bit more of extemporaneous sessions, uh, but save more of that energy for that interaction with the students, being more available for them. And frankly, I think, you know, talking to a lot of teachers, I think they need it, too, because they're isolated in certain ways. And they also like having that uh, back and forth versus just lecturing into a into a video conference.
2: They also need support. They need training. though. what's optimal there as far as you're concerned? What's most effective? What works best?
1: Yeah, they need support. They need training. And, you know, this has been another issue. A lot of the school districts we've talked to, you know, they've had one day or, or, or two days of uh, of training, which, you know, might be the the most basic, you know, how do you use these devices? What Or how do you use these tools? Or what tools are appropriate? Massachusetts uh, has done a very good job of having a more extended training uh, for their teachers. But the tra- the training, a lot of it, I think, should be making teachers feel comfortable that they don't have to do everything that they were doing before and that there might be opportunities for doing new things. And that also making teachers very comfortable that this is a time that experimentation is okay, even doing some things that don't work out initially, as long as we, so to speak, fail forward, uh, that um, because, you know, we don't want perfect to be the enemy of the good. And, and you know, when we talk to teachers, they, they feel a little bit of a a breath of fresh air and you know the other thing we're emphasizing and this is both on the family side and the teacher side is we're in the middle of a pandemic this is not going to be the year where you know historians will say we accelerated students outcomes by you know, 20 to 30% this is going to be the year where hopefully we can avoid the catastrophe that we were talking about a couple of minutes ago and so i think there's an opportunity to do less but make sure we do it with high fidelity and that especially the most uh, under-resourced or vulnerable kids that are engaging in it and that once we get our legs under ourselves, uh, then we can think about a uh, layering on more because it's on both sides. If the teachers feel like they have to do six subjects an hour a day and, you know, do all of the traditional lesson planning, the parents also feel that stress. Uh, they might have a job. They're trying to do other things. They're trying to hold their kids accountable. And. Uh, you know, I can say firsthand in our own family, it's it's really hard to hold kids accountable if they're in if they have to do you know many 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 hours of of work. So I think there could be con- some constructive conversations, uh, hopefully respectful conversations between the parent side and the teacher side, saying, hey, maybe we could do a little bit less, and anything above that is is extra.
2: Yeah, I want to get more of your thoughts about parents, but first I want to get another caller on with us. Cindy joins us, and she joins us from Chicago. Good morning, Cindy.
3: Hi. Um, thank you for taking my call. I am not a teacher, I'm friends with a few teachers, and um, specifically one who teaches kids with visual impairments. She has found it particularly frustrating to try and teach um, online. Do you have any suggestions for general, generally kids with disabilities, uh, specifically those with visual disabilities? and um, or resources if, if this is
2: way beyond you. Cindy, thank you for the call. Sal Khan.
1: Yeah, I don't have any, you know, I'm, I'm not an expert on this. Um, so I, I don't have any, you know, clear advice on this. And this is a group, generally speaking, whether it's, you know, visual impairment or other special needs um, that folks are having the most difficulty with right now uh, in terms of how do we reach them and how do we engage them you know, some ideas could be along the flavors that we were talking about before for certain groups of students, maybe being able to bring them in, you know, and it's a relatively small percentage of the overall student body, and you could bring them into uh, the schools and do it in a in a COVID safe way, so to speak. Uh, You know, one thing that I'm really fascinated about, especially out here in California, where, you know, we, we, for the most part, have reasonable weather is you know being able to do at least a little bit outdoors it doesn't have to be six seven hours a full school day but even an hour a day if you're able to meet in a park meet in the school grounds uh, parking lot wherever if they're able to run some things under a tent i think that type of thing could be uh, uh could be interesting but it, it, this is a very hard situation and um you know I, I'm, I'm definitely not the expert on on this issue
2: well we have discussed this uh in various programs we've done in terms of reaching special needs and uh, I would recommend Cindy go into our archives to find particularly programs devoted to that. But I wanted to ask your advice, all about advice that you have for parents. Uh, I mean, uh, I think part of what you uh, seem to emphasize, at least from what I've been reading, is there should be emphasis on just basics and fundamentals. They don't have to replicate, in other words, all of what goes on in the schoolroom or in the classroom.
1: Yeah, and I'm also speaking from personal experience here as a parent, you know, you're trying to work from home and, uh, you know, your kids have multiple video conference sessions to go to and multiple tasks that they have to do online. If it ends up being, you know, five, six, seven hours of work, especially if these younger kids, my kids are 11, nine and five. uh, It can be very hard and very stressful for parents. And I remind parents, you know, the last thing the kids need is stressed parents and there's obviously already enough things to stress about. And so, there's, you know, there's two categories that I've seen parents, including including myself and, and our family, get stressed about. One is is that enough is not happening, and we saw a lot of that in the spring, where uh, some school systems were able to provide a lot of supports, and others were, weren't able to. Uh, and and there where I remind parents that look, it might look like everyone else has it all figured out, but they don't. And and if you're able to get even, depending on the age of the student, 20, 30 minutes a day in each of math, reading and writing, your child's skills aren't going to atrophy and they probably will progress. And there's easy ways to do that. In math, Khan Academy's there, it's all free, it's all nonprofit. It starts as early as pre-K, goes all the way through calculus stats and, and college level uh, mathematics. We also have that in science and things. But in math, if, if you're able to do that practice, 20 minutes, 30 minutes a day, that practice, that feedback, and, and we really have as much as you need. And then there's video supports that I highly encourage, if, if parents can watch with the kids, Then in reading, it could be as simple as reading a book, talking about it at lunch, uh, reading a magazine together for younger kids, just sit next to them, read to them for 20, 30 minutes a day. And on the writing side, there's a lot of great tools out there. Khan Academy has some resources. There's some paid tools uh, like Lexia, Raz Kids, Newzella, which uh, are also uh, quite good. But it can just be things like, um, you know, asking your child to journal or asking your child to write a, a short essay about what to do about something going on in the world right now, or just write something that takes them away from the world right now, uh, uh, write a fiction story. And it's really important to make it uh, something that matters. So say, hey, we're gonna put it on a blog and share it with your grandparents or your uncle's aunt or your friends. We're gonna talk about it during dinner. If you do that, and what, what I just described is essentially an hour and a half, two hours a day, your kids are going to be just fine. Those are the skills that if they atrophy, they're going to really have trouble engaging in any subject when they come back to school. And then the other subjects, you know, the sciences, the social sciences, the arts also clearly very important. Uh, But if adding those on is creating stress, uh, then it, 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 it it might be a, a mixed bag. And so I think it's also worth having a constructive conversation with teachers You know, I've seen some parents immediately climb the ladder of inference a little bit too fast. Like, you know, our school's making us do too much. I'm stressed. How how do you know how can I take all these pictures of these assignments and put it? I have a job, et cetera, et cetera. Give that feedback to the teachers. For all you know, the teachers might also think that a good idea is to do a little bit less, but they might feel pressure to do all of that. Uh, But, you know, don't blame. The teachers are under incredible stress. And the ones I've seen have been doing incredible jobs right now. And then sometimes, you know, parents can climb the ladder of inference. Oh, I heard so-and-so school is doing X, Y, and Z, and my school is only doing X. I'm going to, you know, tell the teacher. And once again, it's probably for very good reason. It's good to give feedback. Feedback's a gift, but doing it in a very respectful way because people are really stressed right now.
2: Again, our guest is Sal Khan, and he's founder and CEO of Khan Academy. And, uh, Academy, and uh, here's a caller Farad joins us from Fremont. Farad, welcome. You're on the air.
3: Thank you. Thank
1: you, Mr. Khan, for your service. It has been a big help personally. I succeeded in my college math class using Khan Academy online resources. But I want to share my kids' experience of engaging in online
3: school. My, my daughter is second grader, and my son is kindergartner. The challenge is not only for them attending online classes, but also submitting homework to Google Drive or other apps that a school requires them at this young age to work in. In addition, it's a full-time job now for, for the parents, for me and my, my wife, besides working from home. It is a lot of pressure and a stress both on the parents and the children. And plus that many uh, teachers, they are not tech savvy and they themselves actually, while teaching, trying to figure out how to how to use these apps online systems so i
1: want to hear your thoughts and feedback on this
2: yeah thank you for that fraud selcon
1: yeah uh fraud what you're experiencing in your household uh, pretty much every household in america is experiencing right now uh you know i also have uh, some kids that age i have, my youngest is 5 and uh, my middle uh daughter she is 9 and, and my my oldest is 11 it, it, yeah i i think it's it's all about having a conversation with if you're finding it overwhelming something that you know you can't fully handle I would have a conversation with the, the classroom with the teachers and say, look, you know, we could do, we, we might be able to hand in, you know, this for this class, that class and that class, but it's really hard for us to do these other ones. Uh, and maybe you could make that optional. Uh, I think, you know, going back to the earlier conversation, if you, you know, there's there's two sources of stress for parents right now. One is what, what I think you just described is keeping up with all of the work, being able to submit it to the learning management system, and et cetera, et cetera. Which especially for younger kids, the parents have to do a lot of that work. I, I think uh, it's worth having a conversation because I guarantee you, if you're feeling that, every other family in your child's classroom is feeling that, and I'm sure the parents would appreciate, uh, the teachers would the feedback, as long as it's done in a very respectful way, because uh, I'm sure you would. But uh, we, I've seen some examples of, of maybe parents um, you know, taking their stress out on teachers, which I want to be very careful about. Uh, but I think I think the schools would be very understanding, because at the end of the day, they, they, they have two priorities. They want to make sure that families feel well-supported, families don't feel stressed, and that kids keep learning. Uh, the other complaint... forgive me, Sal, I mean,
2: the pressure yeah? on parents is enormous, uh, I mean, to in many cases... They have their own occupation that they have to be concerned about, or in some cases, they have to try to find an occupation because they've lost work. Small businesses have gone under. People have simply lost employment uh, in legion numbers. As we know, those unemployment numbers are going up. But for those who are still employed or for those who are looking for work, this is an enormous burden. There's, it's an onus.
1: 100%. I, and that's why I would say, do what you can. But if you feel like you're redlining, you need to talk to people about it. You need to talk about other ways of getting support. It could be having a conversation with, with the school and the teachers. And once again, if you're feeling it, probably many families are feeling it, so you're not alone. Other possibilities are, you know, there's obviously a lot of conversation about families getting together and kind of, a, you know, extending your COVID bubble, so to speak. Uh, maybe there's families you can work with with similar age kids that You know, they they can do a little bit of work in their backyard or in the garage together uh, and it could take a little bit off of one family for one day and then you could move on to another family. But I 100 percent agree. This is a very, very hard situation. We've definitely had some of this in our own household where uh, all of us parents and and I'm in a very lucky situation. You know, my my wife has been able to do some remote work and, and she's been doing a lot of the support of the kids. My mother in law lives. And even then, it's been incredibly stressful. Uh, So, yeah, this this is going to this is a tough thing where we just have to talk it out, but not be isolated and just feel stressed. Uh, That's not going to be constructive.
2: Well, and even those who have the advantage of uh, being wired or having computers and so forth, uh, there are a lot of things that go wrong. Zoom is not entirely reliable, as we know, and there was, in fact, just yesterday in Miami-Dade County, I'm sure you're aware of it, a cyber attack, and those sorts of things have to be faced as well. Just the pressure on parents is enormous, and uh, we're going to continue and find out more about what can be done. I'm actually looking at some comments here. This is Banu who writes, SalCon is doing a great service to the planet. The challenge now is bandwidth and 5G. And on that, in that context, I should mention that uh, uh, Sal Khan is trying to create a, the first free world-class virtual school. And maybe we'll find out a little bit more about the plan for that. But in the meantime, we're gonna to try to help those of you who are struggling with this, teachers, students, parents. Stay tuned for more. I'm Michael Krasny. You're listening to Forum. I'm Michael Krasny. Our guest is Sour Sal Khan, who is founder and CEO of the Khan Academy. And uh, here's a question from a listener named Chris who emails us and writes, The Contra Costa County Office of Education has gotten permission from Khan Academy to repurpose some of their content to use on educational access television. It is supplemented with local teachers' content. Any comments on how TV can be used to address the digital divide?
1: Yeah, uh, TV is a outlet, Uh, you know, it is the the least interactive of outlets. But once again, you know, this isn't a time where we want the perfect to be the enemy of the good. And that's why, you know, all of us, Khan Academy as a nonprofit, we've always wanted our content to be used in any way that's useful, as long as, you know, people aren't using it in some type of shady commercial way. Uh, So that use case of Contra Costa County is great. Uh, We're definitely seeing that in other parts of the world where device access is a a lot lower than uh, what we have here in the U.S., where they're getting on the local broadcasting stations, even sometimes radio uh, broadcasting uh, Khan Academy lessons, Uh, kids will still miss out. You know, most of our resources as a not-for-profit are actually on the interactive exercise side. And most educators would tell you that's where the real learning happens with the exercises, the practice, the feedback, uh, and then teachers being able to get fairly detailed reports on what kids are doing. Uh, So you miss out on that whole aspect of Khan Academy if you're just broadcasting uh, videos, but it's it's for sure better than nothing.
2: Can we get back, though, for a moment to something in the email I read from Banu that is the challenge with bandwidth and 5G?
1: Yeah, I, I think this is a central, you know, there's, there's kind of a hierarchy of needs, so to speak. You know, you have your old Maslow's hierarchy of needs. You have, I guess, another one for the 21st century, which is if if you're even going to begin to engage in distance learning right now leveraging a Khan academy to get that practice that feedback that you know the, the instructional support or being able to get on zoom or google meet uh, you clearly need some reasonable internet access and uh, we know that 20 30% of america does not have sufficient internet access to uh, engage in these things in, in the right way over the last you know i was just having conversations with with a team at AT&T yesterday they've seen significant pickup in the number of folks who are uh, getting internet access as you can imagine it's it's now a lifeline to the world uh but you still have a large fraction who aren't you know there's these heroic efforts on the part of districts and cities and philanthropists to get more devices more internet access out there uh, but there's even parts it's less of an issue here in the bay area but there's definitely parts of america where even if you can't afford it uh there's just not the the infrastructure hasn't fully gotten there obviously these are in more rural places Uh, So what I'm seeing, you know, talking to telecom carriers is they definitely see this as, you know, their their moment that they have to get that last mile. I think they are looking for some help from government to make it economically viable. Uh, It doesn't necessarily make kind of for-profit economic sense in some cases. And this does feel like a situation where government's got to step in and, and make sure that everyone has the access they need. As I said earlier, if there's one silver lining from this, there might be a few other small silver linings as well is that this is finally putting a spotlight on the need for uh, universal broadband a- broadband access around the country.
2: Well, getting back to pedagogy for just a moment, uh, I think it's important to emphasize, as you and others have, to allow kids to work at their own time and uh, at their own pace, uh, but also to customize instructions and also uh, work in real time as much as possible with immediate feedback. But didn't you work with, I, I believe you did something uh, in partnership with the McKenzie Company about best practices and what works best, what works best pedagogically?
1: Yeah, yeah, we did. A, um, this was work uh, that they they were able to do a lot of the analytical work for us. Uh, where last spring and then over the summer, we said, let's look at the districts, what the different practices are, how are people doing distance learning or hybrid learning, and then try to create a little bit of a playbook. And anyone who's interested in that, you could go to keeplearning.conacademy.org. There's that uh, resource. We also have a distance learning survival guide for parents and teachers. Uh, we have da- daily schedules uh, so that parents and teachers could understand how. Uh, you can reasonably structure the day. Uh, we scheduled webinars for parents and teachers so that they can get some training on on these types of materials. Uh, but you know the the best practices that we're seeing across the board are uh, use Khan Academy or Khan Academy-like tool to for the kids to get their practice at their own time and pace, which even pre-COVID was a best was a best practice. You know we've always talked about that in a traditional academic model. You you know let's say you cover exponents in the class, a little bit of lecture, a little bit of homework. We get, take a test, you get a 90%, I get a 70%. Even though I didn't know 30% that happened to be on that test, the whole class will then move on to the next subject. Probably a subject that builds on those gaps. And especially in math classes, uh, those those Swiss cheese gaps keep accumulating. And at some point you get to an algebra class and nothing makes sense. Not because you don't understand the algebra. It's because that algebraic equation has a, needs you to divide a decimal and you didn't really learn dividing decimals well from fifth grade. And so even pre-COVID, we've talked about that Look, we can use technological tools. Khan Academy's focused on this to allow people to work at their own pace, fill in those gaps, and let parents and teachers know where those students are, so that when they can get in person—and I just did air quotes with my fingers, y'all can't see it—when <laughs> they get in person, whether physically in person or uh, you know in person on a video conference, that's where the teachers can dive deeper on where you know if they see some kids are not engaged, some kids are stuck, some kids just need to be unblocked in some way. Uh, that's where to focus on, and you can imagine with COVID the variance in a classroom that teachers have always known about. They know in a class of 30, some kids are ready to race ahead. Some kids are probably a grade level or two behind. It's been very hard to cater to that. The variance is going to increase because of COVID because some kids have been engaged and some kids haven't been engaged at all. So uh, this notion of personalized learning is going to be, it's it's even more important during COVID. uh, And it's going to be even more important when we get back to normalcy to help close everyone's gaps. And then the other best practice is when you do video conference, if, some, if the adult in the video conference is speaking for more than three or four minutes, that should probably be a video. When people are getting together in video conference, it should be all about interaction, asking as many questions, putting kids into virtual breakouts, having them work through problems together. And every 20 or 30 minutes doing these things that we've been putting out on refresh.conacademy.org that are these kind of fun icebreaker things that help kids socialize above and beyond the academic standards.
2: I think you hit upon something, I'm talking as a veteran teacher of many years, that is particularly important, and that is the individual differences between students and the challenges that are involved in that, especially when you bring in, for example, English language learners and so forth. But I want to also bring in and dive deep into some of the comments that are coming in from listeners. Matthew writes, how can teachers make room for students to check in on what they are really feeling and struggling with? Creative, arts-based practices can help. What other suggestions can you offer?
1: Yeah, I think that's the central thing. You know, there's this the example we talked about in Phoenix, where the the teachers and the district are proactively reaching out to kids. I think every day. I think there's the other way where uh, being being available as much as possible. And you know, teachers only have a a fixed pie of energy and time in their week. And historically, you've had roughly a one to one ratio of the amount of planning and grading and lesson planning and uh, the amount of time you have in front of students. Uh, this is a time where teachers should get as much flexibility and permission to be able to put more time in front of students, but then maybe not have to do as me- much of the the planning, so to speak. So that would mean that those interactions with students are going to be a little bit more impro- improvised, a little bit more extemporaneous. And if all of the standards of the year are not covered, that's OK, as long as that that extra energy, that extra time is used for engaging kids, making sure that they feel supported, making sure they have a place that they can connect with teachers. And it could be, it doesn't have to be a phone call. It doesn't have to be uh, over video conference, over th- you know, those are clearly valuable. It could be over, over text message. Uh, and there's multiple, you know, there's traditional text message and there's tools that uh, teachers use in classrooms like Class Dojo and Remind where they can uh, message with families. You know, just that little check-in makes a huge difference uh, on, on making sure kids feel connected and engaged and supported.
2: Can I just ask you what your thoughts are about federally mandated standardized testing in the context you're talking about? Betsy DeVos uh, put a stop to it last spring because of the pandemic. Where do you stand?
1: Yeah. So, you know, th- this is a big topic. Standardized tests, I kind of view as a, a neutral thing. Uh, you know, they can be very useful. Uh, you need a measure on some level. And obviously the opposite of a standardized test is a non-standardized test, which is less helpful. Uh, but I think they get, we get into trouble with standardized tests when they take significant amount of energy in in the school year and then you're not able to leverage that data. So we've seen a lot of that over the years where people take the assessment and even those assessments, they see that so-and-so has those gaps that happen because everyone's learning at the same time at the same pace, but then there's not a lot that folks can do. So it's just like, why why did we have those assessments? Or sometimes the assessments are used as a little bit too much of a measuring stick uh, on things that frankly, the educators can't control. Uh, And so that's when you get into trouble. But Clearly, in order to understand where you are, where things are going well, where things aren't, you need some form of assessment. Now, what we try to do at Khan Academy is, you know, every interaction is in edu-speak would know, called a formative assessment it's something that helps a teacher understand where the kids are in its real time but it's not something that takes away from the learning the very the, the learning process itself is giving the teacher information ideally when you and i were in school every time we did that problem in the textbook the teacher would know whether we got it wrong or right how long it took us uh, what that tells us about our likelihood of getting other things right uh, that would have been an assessment but obviously technology wasn't there back then but now we have the tools to do that uh, and so i i do think what we're probably going to see over COVID is new ways of thinking about assessment, because uh, obviously right now, you know, uh, actually finding the time to assess is hard, but then making sure that the, the, the kids are the ones taking the assessment authentication. This is really, really difficult. We've clearly seen that with the AP exams this past spring and uh, the ACT and the SAT are, are still struggling through, you know, how, how do we deliver these, these national exams?
2: Let me read an email from a listener who I think shows some of the courage and uh, valor, really, that's required these days. Uh, uh, And this parent writes, My household has been using your tools since the beginning. I have three boys, ages 7, 10, and 14. I'm a single mom who works at a hospital, so I'm definitely feeling the stress. I only have a few hours to dedicate to their schoolwork in the evening, but I'm determined to not let them be a lost generation. I it's to you. Here's Susie who writes, Khan Academy is a wonderful tool. However, my teen who has a learning disability doesn't want to use it because the percentage incentive system feels punitive. The percentage rate drops if you don't keep with it, which makes it feel like one is failing. Can you explain the incentive system and its purpose or how to work around it?
1: Yeah, no, and we've definitely heard that feedback a few times. You know, this is uh, and, and uh, I'll be the first to say I have a long list of things that I, I wish we could get to uh, if we had the resources at, at Khan Academy. But you, you know what we're big believers is in, in this notion of mastery learning. And so what you do on Khan Academy on any given skill, uh, you have as many shots as goal. You, have, you, know, you can practice that skill in particular, and then you can see that skill on what we call mastery challenges and unit tests and, and course challenges. And in order to show mastery, you have to uh, be able to perform a problem like that skill multiple times and i I believe what the uh what's being described here is if you achieve mastery but then at a future date we do spaced repetition to make sure that kids retain the knowledge Uh, if they get the question wrong it actually uh, will reduce their mastery state there's three states familiar proficient and mastery it might take them from master to proficient Uh, so there's a little bit of that element there's also could be the element that we're constantly refining and adding new skills uh, based on what we think kids need and uh, sometimes when we add new skills, if you were 90% done before, but now we've just added 10 new skills, you might be 80% done. So, you know, our apologies there, but it's all our attempt to uh, uh, keep up and make sure we're we're covering all the right standards in, in the best possible way.
2: Another caller joining us from Santa Clara, Rachel, welcome.
3: Hello, can you hear me? Yes, we can. Okay, um, I just wanted to uh, comment on um... Uh, Mr. Khan, I am impressed. I expected you to be articulate and intelligent, but you also seem very decent and kind and wise and generous. Kudos to you. But my question is, I happen to be blessed with an extra MacBook Air. Is there some place I could donate it uh, to help close the digital divide? And I'll take my answer off the air.
2: All right. Thank you for that, Rachel.
1: Well, well first, first, thanks, Rachel. Um, and I, I, I am not aware, I do know that almost every city, every school district, they, they are having programs like that where you can donate unused devices. Uh, so I don't have it offhand, but I'm sure if you did a, a little bit of web research, you should be able to find some local groups that would be more than happy uh, to, take, to take that MacBook Air off your hands.
2: And here's a listener who writes, much of the focus is on K-12 through 12 students. What about the many college students who find themselves in a similar predicament? My daughter is a transfer student at Santa Clara University, and she will be doing all of her studies online. Can your guests comment on this?
1: Yeah, this is going to, I think, some fascinating and maybe not so good things are going to happen to the higher education system. Even pre-COVID, we all know there's been a lot of conversation about the return on investment, the cost of higher education, and can those kids, you know, are they getting employment at the level or the compensation that they were hoping? And now with COVID, you know, a lot of the value of, of higher education and K-12 as well, but if you're going to go, especially in a residential college and, you know, we all imagine late night conversations in the dorm room or throwing the frisbee in, in the quad, you know, fairly stereotypically. Um, those aren't happening and if you are doing a pure virtual experience you know does that make sense to pay 30 40 50 some cases 60,000 dollars a year in, in tuition uh, and so you know i think uh, the caller the the person's daughter is going to be just fine uh, in terms of academic progression on on the virtual side but i think that social uh, it, that social gap is a, is a very real one uh, you know especially the freshman years when you make a lot of those friendships etc so uh, you know, schools are are doing are are doing some good efforts here and there. I'm actually intrigued by. I've just been reading about University of Illinois at Urbana-Champaign, where they they're almost like a microcosm of handling, in, in service to academics. Uh, they're handling the vac- They're handling uh, COVID the way that arguably we wish we were doing it at a national level, where uh, they develop their own test. Uh, they they are testing every person on the campus at University of Illinois every three days. Uh, everyone on the campus has to download an app so they can do optimal contact tracing. If they find someone has COVID, they isolate them, but treat them really well and give them really good food so that they don't feel like they're, they're ostracized. Uh, and they're, they're doing a really good job. Uh, being able to uh, stay up and running. So a lot of folks are looking at University of Illinois, Urbana-Champaign to think of an example, not just of what higher education to do, but frankly what cities and countries could do in terms of uh, managing the virus. But I think it's going to be a really tough year for higher education. Obviously it's a very suboptimal experience for the kids. I think the kids are going to be able to engage at that age group. Uh, they usually have uh, the ability, I mean, college anyway, you oftentimes have to be fairly independent in order to engage academically. Uh, the social side is go- is going to suffer dramatically. And I think financially, a lot of universities are are on the fence.
2: You know, we had uh, Carol Christ on uh, recently, the chancellor of UC Berkeley, and uh, there was some concern expressed by various faculty members that maybe the reliance upon distance learning or upon online learning uh, is moving us in a direction that certainly a lot of teachers, professors particularly, are not necessarily happy about. Uh, it's going to become, in other words, eclipsing the sort of thing that you said earlier, uh, that is the necessity of having face-to-face learning and how much more enhancing it is for the whole learning process, that it's going to become more dependent upon, perhaps. Your thoughts?
1: Yeah, well, you know, I think you could view that as an opportunity. Uh, There are experiences that we all remember from college where you're one of 300 people in a large lecture hall, and those weren't particularly engaging experiences. Um, And and so, you know, I think what educators need to think about is if the experience you were delivering could be delivered online, uh, maybe you should rethink what you were doing. And I think there's plenty of opportunities uh, when you get... 300 students in person to do something more interactive than than just lecturing at them for an hour and a half. Uh, You can put them in groups, have them do projects, do something interactive so that when human beings are in the room, they're actually working with each other. And I think that would make it even clearer, the value of in-person education versus distance learning or online. And we're seeing a lot of universities do that type of thing, even pre-COVID, You know, I've I've spoken a lot about this where people intellectually say, yeah, it makes no sense for 300 people to get in the room, something that they could get on a, on a video, let's make them interact. And I think COVID is going to accelerate that even more because if students are like, wait, I'm learning just fine the traditional way on, on, you know, some type of Zoom session or something, then the, the schools have to create a value proposition that when you come into our campus, we're going to, we're going to up the level of human interaction.
2: Well, let me read a couple of tweets before we say goodbye to you, Sal. Uh, here's a listener who says, I appreciate Mr. Kahn being sensitive to such important social and emotional deficits. It's stunning, the vast harm being perpetrated on an entire generation. It speaks to the vital need to make societal decisions based on science. And Susan tweets, one form of assessment now is how many students meltdown on Zoom. Boy, I didn't have time to talk about what's called the zombification from Zoom. Uh, Maybe another day we can get you back here and talk about that and many other things that we didn't have an opportunity to talk about. But it's certainly been an enlightening hour. And I appreciate all the work you've done on behalf of uh, students who need help and parents who need help and teachers who need help. Thank you so much for being
1: with us. Thanks for having me, Michael.
2: That's Al Khan, and again, he's founder and CEO of the Khan Academy. We're here with you Monday through Friday, nine to eleven. Another hour up ahead with Mina Kim. Uh, stay tuned for that. And always remind you, you can let us know what you like on Forum or what you don't like or what you want to hear. Forum at kqed.org. Stay safe. I'm Michael Krasny.
0: Funds for the production of Forum are provided by the members of KQED Public Radio and the Germanicos Foundation and the Generosity Foundation.